and uh, I found myself with a flock of uh, 50 swifts climbing up to 2,000 meters. And it was such an, an amazing uh, experience that changed, actually changed my, uh, my attitude and my life. You are listening to Welcome back to the another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Starting off without Tony for part of it, hung up at a meeting, listened to some people read manifestos to a park advisory board, like straight out of Parks and Recreation. He's like our, our burly, bearded Leslie Nope. Um, and so just as the sta- some of the standard reminders, um, if you like this podcast, please go into your podcasting platform of choice, whether that's Stitcher or iTunes, and rate the podcast. Please tell other people that you like it. That can be for whatever platform you want, Facebook, Twitter, pass notes around. I don't care. Call people. Let them know that you love the podcast if you do. Um, feel free to get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at herbwildlifecast, and you can find us on Facebook. All great ways to get us some feedback. Let us know how you think we're doing. Um, any ideas for future topics, uh, and any other feedback. So I'm here with... Helena Van Vliet. And Helena is... I'm a biophilic architect. I'm also um, uh, one of the founders of Biophily. Biophily is a, shall we say, sister organization of Biophilic Cities, which is an international network of cities that was begun by Professor Tim Beatley of UVA maybe four or five years ago and with the idea that cities need to become places of wild and biodiverse nature because most of the urban most of the global population is either living already in cities 54% already and so we need to solve our problems that we have on the planet we need to start solving them in cities um, so Biophily is an organization uh, that wants to engage uh, designers, but also just anybody really, in reimagining Philadelphia as a uh, natureful city where um, every resident has daily and regular contact and experience with biodiverse nature. And for me personally, I'm a biophilic architect, so I came to this work from a concern for the sense of place. I also consider my profession a healthcare profession, so I'm very interested in the physiological experience of place and the health effects that it has. And um, biophilia in general um, takes sustainability into a, an emotional realm. So biophilia, philia means love. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very much about the emotional connection to a place that we foster through a multisensory experience, through touch and smell and hearing and um, an all-body experience. And I, I feel, and a lot of us feel, that sustainability, when we move sustainability into biophilia, it becomes something that we want to engage with because over time we conserve what we love. And if we can learn to love the place that we live in, we will be much more likely to take care of it. 
loving the planet is very abstract for our <laughs> old brains, yeah. but loving the our backyard or our front yard or our balcony or our little area is much more tangible. What is biophilic architecture versus sustainable versus the kind of lead certifications we're more used to hearing about that sort of thing? Yeah, you can have uh, you can have lead certified buildings uh, that, for instance, uh, kill a great number of birds yeah. because they're reflective glass, for instance, or something. So, a biophilic building would be a building that is very energy efficient, but also integrates well into nature and permits a nature experience, a seasonal experience that connects people with nature. That's how I consider it. So there are many different aspects of that. There's an aspect of how the periphery is designed, for instance, that it is uh, it doesn't have hard edges, it has soft edges, so that there are transitional spaces designed into it. Um, uh, that maybe it has green facades, maybe it, ha- it opens and closes to experience weather patterns. Um, it has a non-human-centric point of view, and that's the way I look at biophilia also. Uh, it's a, to me, it's a non-human-centric uh, effort. Okay. So we, we, we kind of rediscover symbiotic relationships with all other life forms, which turns out we can learn a lot, lot from. Um, other organisms, animals, bacteria, fungi, <laughs> uh, they've been builders and makers and designers for eons and have created a beautiful planet without us. So my question is, so those are principles. How are, you, how are we applying those now in Philadelphia? Right. So in terms of the urban environment in Philadelphia... What we wanted to do, what we want to do, is uh, reimagine the city as a place of wild and biodiverse nature. So we, as organisms, as I said, we as as biological organisms, grew up in a biodiverse world. That's how we designed. Yeah. And we still prefer that. We love that. It makes us feel comfortable. It makes us feel joyful. Uh, it inspires a sense of wonder. We now have the neuroscience and the medical research that proves to us that it's good for us. Our blood pressure comes down. Our stress level comes down. It is healthy. And so how do we reimagine the city as a place for all sorts of species to kind of live in a symbiotic relationship? And we started thinking about, when we started working with Keith also... uh, And just for references... Keith Russell from Audubon. We talked a lot about looking at Philadelphia from a bird point of view. And my, my particular interest is, is really in a non-human-centric point of view, where we say, okay, so there are all kinds of other critters living in this city. I remember Tim Beatley, who I mentioned earlier, who uh, began the Biophilic Cities movement. He had us at the launch conference, I think it was in twenty forget 2013 or 14 he had us down in charlotteville looking uh, for ants in the city sure and you know everybody <laughs> gets down there and, yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, but, but but here's here's this whole conference and everybody is now having a paradigm shift outside outside okay but yeah. on you know on the uva campus right around the buildings yeah you know so how many species of ants do you people see yeah. And, and, of course, the point is there are all these worlds under our feet that we've, you know, 
forgotten are there. So oh, yeah. there all these all these little um, large worlds and all these different creatures are interacting with us and living in in and amongst us. And um, we talked about um, reimagining buildings as habitat sure. areas, and that's some of the swift work that. Oh, you this is right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's my particular interest as an architect. You know, if I if I take a, a tall building uh, and and I understand that a bird thinks of that maybe as a a mountain or a series of cliffs um, that you might want to build a nest on or rest on or feed on. So how do I design this building so it is a habitat, not a bird killer? Yeah. You know. And what is that? Uh, what? How does that building change? Now we we know we have a lot of buildings in Philadelphia that kill a lot of birds. You know, a lot of birds flying through on the on Atlantic, on the Atlantic Flyway. Flyway yeah. yeah, I cannot profess to know even a fraction of what Keith knows about this. Um, I'm learning. I'm learning. <laughs> Keith knows idea. more than anyone else does yeah, about does. what flies really through does. Philadelphia. He really yeah. does. So <laughs> I have understood that birds are fly like weather systems, and they they just move in these giant. Just cloud-like formation. You can see them on side on, on radar images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what what we started to do is we started to develop a habitat map where we say, okay, so let's imagine this city is a habitat, and let's see, let let's mark all the green areas and all the potential ha- the, the existing habitat areas and the potential habitat areas, and let's connect all these dots and let's see where we can where we have holes in this tapestry of green. Let's see where we can create pollinator corridors. Let's see where we can have resting places, nesting places, and so forth. And and my personal goal is to to um, identify the areas that are the holes in the tapestry and start working on them in terms of adopt uh, a block or adopt an empty lot or you know have small groups of residents or school children or communities or something take care and own these little spaces and turn them into wild little wilderness areas sure that we can then connect you know little by little by little by little what i'm talking about is nothing particularly revolutionary it's not something particularly i, I think new. it is i mean it's it's revolution depending how you apply it to to, to urban landscapes, it could be. It's only the past few years people have started to pay attention to bird collisions with windows. Yeah. And yeah. some of the ways that um, certainly plants, lichen, etc., will, will colonize buildings through what I think of as older surfaces, like brick or stone. As I watch sort of the totally glass you know, skyscrapers go up around Philadelphia, yeah. uh, it's hard to imagine seeing a peregrine falcon or a red-tailed hawk like you know perched on there or see like patterns of lichen grow on the brick you know or see ferns grow out of the mortar between stones or something like that um and so it seems like the surfaces and the design that that i see going up around at least this city is particularly unfriendly to to other things i don't know maybe in in a hundred years it'll look different but (laughs) well no i I think that's that's exactly right. What what you asked me a little while ago, you know, a lead building, um, a lead building can be a biophilic building, but not every lead building is a biophilic building. Um, and in the in the more more in the latest building standards, like the Living Building Challenge standard, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Nope. Biophilia is included in that as okay. a requirement. 
What is the Living Building Standard? Living Building Challenge. Uh, sta- challenge um, it's it's another building standard which includes aspects uh, of health and happiness and equity in the project. Okay. But in terms of the periphery of buildings that you mentioned, the the hard edges very much to me as a biophilic architect. That's exactly it. You know, how does the building meet the ground? How does the building meets meets the area around it? Is it a soft edge or a hard edge? If it's a soft edge, it probably sustains life. It can sustain life. Our life and the life of other species. By soft edge, I mean it's a layered edge. It maybe is a green, green wall, uh, green facades. Maybe it has crevices or balconies or, you know, it, it doesn't, it's just not, it's not just inside, outside, it has a depth to it. It has recesses, it has, you know, little cavities where life can happen, where nesting can happen. Yeah. Some of the buildings that you were, you know, that you were showing in, in Italy, uh, the Swift, the old Swift Towers. Yeah. Were buildings that had very sculpted facades with yeah. recesses and opportunities for life to occur. E.O. Wilson, who is sort of one of the fathers of biophilia. Well, if you're bio- using the term biophilia, yeah, you. Right. Well, well, he <laughs> said, "Will will will humans love life enough to save it?" You know, he asked that question. Yeah. And so, to me, biophilic cities, biophilic design is life creating conditions for life, and not for, just for ours. And for background, E.O. Wilson is a um, sort of very prominent. Uh, entomologist, ecologist, um, who's written about an idea, um, biophilia, that um, we are um, just innately drawn to other life or to life in general um, and have yeah. an innate sort of love of nature and, and what, and, and yeah. so that's how we see that. And that's, that's where the concept is getting pulled into the design that. Yes. That and I, I always uh, relate it back to evolution that we really are, uh, biological organisms that prefer very specific circumstances that we have evolved um, to do well in, yeah. you know, and that have contributed to our survival. Okay. Uh, and we still prefer them. And um, the thing about nature, also, if if we if if we can foster the daily experience of nature in our cities, from the smallest to the largest, we also find that. A sense of wonder and a sense of awe is maintained in us. And the very new research from Berkeley, um, from a Berkeley a psycholo- a psychology lab, actually has, has shown that a sense of wonder and awe is one of the most socializing emotions. It, it, trans- it helps us to transcend ourselves sure. and to be more cooperative, to think outside of ourselves and in a more collective sense. So I'm going to use that as a segue and record um, a little bit uh, of intro to of Amnon Han, who I talked to about Swifts in Israel. So for background, Amnon was a service manager for a vehicle repair company dealing mostly with motorcycles and had taken up paragliding as a hobby. It, this is taking a large parachute and then taking advantage of winds and, and uh, thermals and updrafts to... Um, get yourself into the air with your giant paraglider thing, which is like a giant parachute, mm-hmm. um, and then fly around with that thing. Now it's up there along with like skydiving is one of these things that I, I'm probably too afraid to ever try, but and now I'm kind of curious. Um, 
But he talked about how they would use Swifts as indicators of thermals. Yeah. Um, and he talked about how at the end of one particular three-day competition, the conditions weren't great. At the end of the third day, he was gliding back down after uh, like one last unsuccessful takeoff, and we pick it up there with him. Um, and uh, you'll hear about how he was struck by this sense of wonder and awe um, as he found himself within within this flock of swifts, mm. um, and mm-hmm. that sort of kindled in him like this this urge to this this now this passion that to to, to preserve swifts. And I took off in the last. Uh five, seven minutes, and gliding down to the field where all my friends were out there. Nothing happened, and all of a sudden I heard uh, the screaming of the Swifts. And I said, okay, if there are Swifts, it's always a good indication, and I decided to fly towards their direction, and I found myself with a flock of uh, 50 Swifts climbing up to 2,000 meters. And it was such an, an amazing uh, experience that changed, actually changed my uh, my attitude in my life, really. All of a sudden, you see, you notice, you realize, it's not those small birds that you see from the distance. They are like flying boomerangs. They have very long span wings, and although they are narrow, but they're very, very long, and they're beautiful creatures. They have these uh, black metal body color, and they have a very fascinating uh, white throat. And the eyes, I was amazed by the eyes. They have this big, like, teddy bear. Teddy bear is, uh, you know, the toys. And amazing. And the way they, they moved, the way they uh, maneuvered in the air, it was Unbelievable. And uh, I could hear the, the, the special cracking sound that they create when they change their flight uh, directions. It was unbelievable, amazing experience. Uh, my name is Amnon Han. I'm uh, the general manager and the founder of organization Friends of the Swiss. It's an association, official association registered in Israel 2007. What do we know about the history of Swifts in, on man-made structures in Israel? I mean, you know, buildings have not been there forever, but they've been there for a very long time. Well, uh, we know that they adopted the man-made constructions or buildings or houses as their uh, nesting uh, places. And this is not only, uh, of course, mainly because of the uh, old way of buildings which is not like the modern technology, uh, which is sealed and hermetic, as now uh, buildings are being made. In the old uh, days, when people uh, started to live together and left uh, the caves and started to make their own uh, constructions for for living in, Swift found that as uh, optimal for for their own use, for uh, the way they will uh, step out and fly. Because, as you know, Swift, uh, at least the common Swift, uh, lives on the wing all the time, except from uh, for the uh, nesting period. For this reason, uh, has no uh, active legs. It, it's not standing on its legs. In addition to that, also because of the the fact that they uh, spend most of their time on the wing, their wings are very, very narrow and they're very, very long. And they need a minimum of uh, airspeed to uh, to obtain the the minimum lift they need to keep themselves in the in the air. So once they leave the nest, they even a, 
An adult uh, swift falls down like three meters. If there's no wind, it's able to gain the minimum uh, lift. It needs to to fly and to control its direction. And I know it because <laughs> you can, uh, whoever watching uh, swiftness and see the the swifts uh, going out uh, to fly, they fall down to to two to three meters. So they need uh, places in vertical uh, walls that they will have no obstacles on their way to take off. And they have to be in high places. And it seems like whoever spotted it uh, in ancient times was uh, Jeremiah the prophet, who actually also uh, is the first one to give them the name in Hebrew. It's uh, Sis, S-W-E-S, you can pronounce it like this, which is uh, called uh, onomatopoeic name. The name is given because of the sounds they they produce when they uh, communicate. It's a high tone uh, uh, whistle, and that's uh, that's why he calls them the seas. Later on, they adopted another uh, description, sisachomot, uh, which means the swift of the walls, because uh, people spotted them uh, entering the walls of the old, the ancient urban areas the walls of the houses or the walls that surrounded the urban communities of the ancient times. Okay. And I got to admit, the hook for me for this topic, you know, why I started looking into it specifically was reading about Swifts at the Kotel at the Western Wall. Can you talk a little bit about that population? Well, of course. Actually, uh, as far as I know, the first uh, report about uh, swift nesting in the Kotel uh, came from a rabbi named Joseph Kornfeld. He made the report about the swift nesting in the Kotel to this guy uh, in Berlin, Ulrich Tigges, the swift researcher. And uh, this guy, uh, Ulrich from Berlin, he decided to come over to Israel and to make a study about the swift nesting in the Kotel. And uh, it was published. He made it together with the late uh, Professor Mendelssohn in his from the Tel Aviv University. Spent uh, nearly three weeks with a map of the Western Wall, and they spotted each uh, each nest, each entrance in between uh, giant stones of the Western Wall. They they spotted 88 uh, nesting sites. Uh, what we have decided to make after we established, uh, we founded uh, the association. We made a ceremony in Jerusalem with the city of Jerusalem and uh, with the officials from the Western Wall and uh, including the rabbi of the Kotel <laughs> himself, making a welcome ceremony for the Swift in the Western Wall. Uh, and it had became uh, like a, a habit to do it uh, year after year together with the city of Jerusalem and the uh, Society for Protection of Nature in Israel and uh, all Whoever is a nature lover in Israel and a bird watcher are welcome to join. I mean, there's a lot of species of animals and plants that take to our take to the things that we build or the landscapes that we create. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of them are so do so so much that we give them names <laughs> that mm-hmm. that convey that. And so mm-hmm. um, given in Europe, in in the Middle East, they just called them... Well, actually, he was saying that in in Hebrew, they refer to them as, as wall swifts. You know, the, the, when I watch the, the swift videos, uh, 
that you shared with me. Yeah. It was I was reminded of this bridge in Austin uh, where the bats. Have you heard of that bridge? Oh yeah. <laughs> well, it's the same kind of thing where where just thousands of people turn up to just be in awe. Oh yeah. You know. And there's so so the the bats and so the there the yeah. we were some of the things we'll link to are um, some of the videos from Israel, but also we're also going to hear from from a, a swift conservationist in Wisconsin. Uh, and sort of looking at swift conservation in the American Midwest, and um, some of the videos we're, you're gonna we'll link to um, and put out through social media and stuff um, are of the swifts heading back into chimneys. And this is something I've wanted to see in Philadelphia, but I haven't quite mm. pinned down the right chimney. I was in mm. a town called Tawanda, which is in what we call the northern tier of Pennsylvania, the counties um, up along the border with, with New York. Uh, and I was just like, looking across the street and I saw a couple Swifts like just sort of like duck down into a chimney. And it's kind of yeah, funny how they do incredible. it. Well, that, and that's what they do while they're nesting. And then at the end of the nesting season, um, after all the chicks have, have fledged, they sort of group up together in bigger and bigger flocks and will have like large chimneys um, or large other spaces, old buildings, what have you, that they use and just go in all together. And so it looks like reverse smoke coming down into a smokesack. Karen Etter Hale. I'm the um, chairperson of the Wisconsin Bird Conservation Initiative. Chimney Swifts are a pretty small bird. It's one of our aerial insectivores. It spends almost its entire life on the wing and it can only perch on vertical surfaces like inside chimneys. So uh, historically, they used to nest in large hollow trees in the old forests. But once human, once uh, Europeans came to this country and started building homes with chimneys, especially the brick chimneys, the chimney swift population increased quite a lot, actually, and uh, that's where we see them, and that's why they're called chimney swifts. How do we know they increased a lot? This is something that we've kicked around as a topic just amongst ourselves that are, and, and I know even just emailing back and forth just now that sometimes historical numbers on populations are hard to come by. Do we know how anything about sort of the extent of their increase or how is that documented? Well, we really don't know probably historically uh, how many Swifts there were, but if you just think about the eastern half of the U.S. being covered uh, largely in forest and then how many large trees might have been suitable for roosting or nesting, um, and then you think about the huge increase in towns, uh, small small to large, uh, across that space, I think we can safely, very safely say that, that the Swift population is a lot bigger now than it was before um, the recent civilization and the building of, of all of these building, you know, homes and, and um, factories, too, and large buildings. Okay. Uh, we do, but we don't have actual numbers, and it is hard to get numbers even um, even from year to year here. But they do have the the federal breeding bird surveys, and that's what they're looking at as far as the um, populations and um, long term range wide. They have been declining. 
Um, and that would be from 1966 to 2010, I think, is the, the latest analysis. And it declined about 2.2% per year. Okay. So where do you, in what kind of areas in Wisconsin do you see them? Where do you, you know, small towns, big towns? You'd probably see them in almost every small town across the, the state in the summer. They, they do eat insects, so you won't find them uh, here in Wisconsin until early May for the most part. And then they start leaving in August from northern Wisconsin and September and into October from more southern areas of the state. Um, and certainly the larger towns, especially in the evenings, you can see them uh, going to roost in the, in the chimneys. So people need to look up and, and just <laughs> pay attention. And, and see what's going on, especially in August. When they, they're done nesting and they start gathering uh, to roost for the night, There's, there can be some real spectacular um, roosts in the, in the later part of the summer and into the fall. Describe what it looks like. like what, is it, what about it is, is spectacular? Yeah, well, um, some of the bigger ones are 100 to up to 1,000 uh, and even more swift. And as it gets darker and darker, they're still out seeding, and they start gathering as it gets darker. And um, and then a few start going down into uh, the chimney. And then as it as it gets almost sometimes too dark to see, they start funneling in um, faster and faster. It's almost like reverse smoke coming down the chimney. And they're they're just swirling around. And there's always a few that just oh no, I'm not going in. <laughs> They just keep flying. Um, <laughs> and the other odd, really odd thing we think is that they don't always use the same chimney. So the, there was a there was a big there's a big one in Madison. It's the biggest one that we found in the state so far. It was at one of the middle schools, and we they estimated 2,800 swifts going down that chimney. Two years later, there weren't any going down that chimney. What will happen next year? We don't know. So it's it's it is hard to estimate the numbers of Swifts, but that was just a real spectacle. People uh, are going on field trips; they would just come and uh, watch that chimney in August or early September. Uh, it was just incredible, and you can see that on the Wisconsin Chimney Swift Working Group homepage. There is a video uh, posted right now. We're trying to upgrade the. The uh, website, it's pretty out of date right now, but there is uh, a video of that swift roost. Very neat. That's a good thing for us to be able to link to on social media when we end up posting the episode. Um, the, can you talk a little bit about what the working group is doing? I mean, it, it is, is it, well, I'll, I'll, I won't get too far. Now. Go ahead. Explain what are the kind of activities <laughs> that the working group does? Um, we're trying to do a variety of things. It is a statewide effort. Uh, we're trying to, first of all, just identify and protect roost chimneys. We don't even know where they all are. Uh, some people have seen them, but they haven't reported them. There hasn't been any formal way to organize all that data. Uh, we are trying to, of course, educate people about the fact that there are swifts there, what they are, that they're even um, out there. And then to just try to encourage people to go out, especially, like I said, August, September, to identify and let us know about these chimney swift roofs. We're encouraging everyone to use eBird because that's accessible uh, to everyone. 
um, but they can report it otherwise too. And another thing we're doing is trying to encourage people to go out and look for chimneys that are used by a pair of birds for nesting in June and July. Uh, we're in the second year of our second Wisconsin Breeding Bird Atlas coming up, and uh, we'll, we'll be doing a big push to try to get people out there to locate nesting chimneys. So there's a whole variety of things that the working group is doing. Uh, there is some field research that is being done, too, by the Western Great Lakes Bird and Bat Observatory. They're going to be looking at these artificial chimneys that people put up, the, the roost towers um, or the nesting towers. They're, they're more for nesting than for large. They're not large roosts, but for nesting. Uh, because they're not working very well in Wisconsin right now, and we think they need to be insulated, we think they need to be sited properly, and um, so the um, observatory is going to be looking into the details on that. So that's some of what. I'll ask you about those things. Okay. Um, but uh, that is interesting. They're not working. Um, those are some. You just mentioned the ideas. Why? Okay. Cool. Um, it's funny, sort of preempted a question why my brain was still like, wait, ask about the towers. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so then um, we've, we've nearly covered everything I want to ask about. It's a couple more questions. So even if you're not in Wisconsin, um, you know, what are ways that, that you can, that people can do things to help their local Swifts? If they're, if they're, if they're looking up above the rooftops in some other place, um, and they're like, hey, those are really neat. I've heard they're in decline. What should I do? The first thing people should do is, is keep an eye on them. Uh, see if you can actually uh, find where they're nesting or roosting. Um, that can be a bit tricky to do if you're trying to find a nest uh, location. Uh, watch for the swifts in late May, early June. Uh, they go through the edges of trees and snap off little branches for their nest. And then they'll fly back to a chimney. Uh, the, tr the trick is to follow up and try to find the chimney. Later in the summer, like I said earlier, uh, try to find the roost chimneys. That isn't always easy either. You'll hear the, the, the swifts above chittering, and uh, you might even see them gathering, and then you'll lose track of them. Um, and maybe take a, it might take a few nights before you figure out which chimney exactly they're, they're going down. The other important thing that people can do besides reporting them to eBird, uh, is keep your chimneys, especially your brick chim old brick chimneys, untapped. And keep the damper closed uh, so that, uh, that they'll be safer when they're nesting in your chimney. A lot of chimneys are being capped now. Um, you what do you mean by capped? People are concerned about their um other creatures getting down their chimney, and that is a problem, like raccoons, uh, sometimes wood ducks come down chimneys looking for good nesting sites. They get trapped or they end up in your living room. Um, so uh, people are capping their chimney, putting a cap over it, so there's some venting, but the, the uh, creatures can't get in, but swifts can't get in either. Newer homes are built without uh, chimneys anymore at all, or they're lined uh, with metal flues, and uh, the birds can't use those. And we're losing the big old chimneys, too. The big ones that are in downtown sometimes, the manufacturing ones, you can see them around schools, and a lot of those are being knocked down. 
Um, so we need to protect our, our um, keep those uncapped if you can. So I have a question. This is more of a just an opinion or a speculative kind of question. Um, so we've we've talked about how the chimney swifts are declining relative to what they were, I guess, in the middle part of the 20th century, and yeah. are mm-hmm. are sort of I think informed assumption that their populations are much higher um, from that point than they were sort of pre-colonization. Um, is so then. Are they, is it, does it matter in a conservation sense if they're declining from kind of an artificial high? I mean, I, it, it sort of, it, it, that might not, I'm not saying is it a good or a bad thing that we should intervene, um, but is it, how do we categorize this kind of effort? Is it a sort of like a, a local um, environmental effort? Is it in a way like sort of a city or urban character, um, like almost historical preservation kind of effort? How do you think of it? Well, humans have changed the surface of the earth so much uh, that we we can never go back to pre-colonization times. So we have to start at some point, you know, where at some point and then and then see what's happening. And we actually don't know why the Swifts have been declining since the mid we know they've been declining since the mid sixties overall. But we don't actually know why they're declining. And there's people looking into that, too. Um, it, it could be uh, uh, the, the habitat, you know, not enough uh, chimneys, but actually some people don't think that's the case at all. We think it could be pesticides and the uh, decline of, of aerial insects because the other aerial insectivores, like swallows, uh, nighthawks, uh, some of the flycatchers, whippoorwills, a lot of those are declining too, and some of them quite precipitously. So we really need to look at all the different factors and uh, see, try to figure out why the swifts and some of these other insectivores are declining. What are we, what's happening out there? So I don't think we can go, we can't go back to pre-colonization. We have to we have to start at some point and then see see what's going on. And if the Swifts keep going declining, something's wrong. I think something's probably wrong. So it's 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 good to put it in that kind of broader context. Thank you. Um, so we've run through all the questions I had to ask. Um, do you have anything else that you'd like to toss in or mention at the end? Just say that Swifts are just really, really cool birds, and uh, <laughs> and we we can't. A lot of us can't wait till they come back each year, and and we just have them back in our our neighborhoods. And uh, and I, I guess I would add that they're not just in urban areas too, or even small towns. We have found them nesting in silos out in rural areas and and in other uh, surprising places, and a few of them in the old trees too but pretty rare these days but they're really cool so get out and watch for them hey podcast listeners we had so much great material for this episode that we split it into two parts so please pick us back up for the part two and hear about italian swift conservation wall lizards in maastricht in the netherlands and dolphins in Aberdeen, Scotland.